This is a Founding Media podcast. Welcome back to Masters and Founders. I'm your host, Dan Diller. This podcast was created to focus on both masters and founders, the many paths they've taken in their careers and lives, and the many ways they define success. My guest today has certainly carved out his own path, and he's done so by always following his passions. Dr. Ken Wiesen started his career as a U.S. Air Force navigator, a path which took him through flight test school and six tours of combat duty before he retired as Major General. Along the way, he earned a PhD in geophysics, and he now works at UT Austin serving as the Associate Director of the Bureau of Economics, Geology's Environmental Division. In our chat, Ken shares how his childhood love of military history and science fiction were the seeds that ultimately grew into a fascinating career. He takes us through his time as an Air Force navigator, some of his most exciting moments in flight test school, and the work he now does as an environmental researcher. Ken has a particular interest in geothermal energy, and he explains how it works, why it's a great renewable energy source, and what the heck it has to do with space. The episode explores the value of new experiences and the importance of loving what you do. So buckle up, get ready for takeoff, and let's get into my conversation with Ken. Ken, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Beautiful day in Austin. Thank you to Ibel for these wonderful studios. This is a great place to do some recording. Really wanted to get into our conversation. We picked up over coffee last week or a couple weeks ago. Um, I was just so intrigued by what you're doing, the various things you've done throughout your career, what you're doing now. And so I like to just start off by, you know, let's just tell the audience what you do now. I am a geophysicist at the University of Texas at Austin at the Bureau of Economic Geology, which is a research organization. It's also the State Geologic Survey. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the oldest research arm of the university. Okay. So it's been around for a long time. I joined it about two years ago. I administer all the econo- uh, environmental research, mm-hmm. and then I do my own research in geothermal energy. Yeah, I, I want to get into geothermal energy, but why is geothermal something so important to you? I, I've had an, in, well, actually the first way I got interested in it, I, I'm a, I've got degrees in physics and geology. Okay. I wanted to get my PhD. I wanted to combine those into mm-hmm. geophysics, which yeah. I did. And I'm not a terribly good mathematician, but the mathematics of fluid and heat flow are the same and they're mm-hmm. kind of elegant. And that's what first got me into it. And yeah. then the fact that it's a green, renewable, zero carbon energy source kind of kept me going yeah. on it once I kind of started to get into it. Yeah. And uh, the research end I like, it's interesting, it's diverse, it's geology, and you're not always in an office. Some of it, you have to get outdoors and do field work and Mm -hmm. log wells and such. And I just like that mixture of of things. I want to get into the research that you're doing now. um, But before we do that, I really want to, you know, Masters and Founders is all about following your passion. And so when we were chatting about your career, uh, I find it super fascinating. But the thing that intrigued me the most is, becoming a master at your craft and just kind of following your passion. So I want to go back to the start of your career and, 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 and you've got some, your air force. I'll let you, I'll let you start with, with your training. Okay. Well, let me back up a little bit first. Uh, Growing up, I was a voracious reader and I read typically military history and science fiction. Okay. And those really set the path for me, even (laughs) as a, you know, a teenager, and I've just gone back and forth between executing and following up on those 
two loves mm -hmm. the whole time. So here at University of Texas, I was, I'm an undergraduate from here. I was a physics major. I was in ROTC for the Air Force. Mm -hmm. And I was slated to be a, a scientist in the Air Force. And in my senior year, I finally said, no, I got to fly. Yeah. And so I switched over. I was already wearing glasses. Yeah. So I couldn't be a pilot at that time. They didn't have corrective eye surgery back then. Yeah. So I, I got a navigator position and uh, went into that at, once I graduated from UT. What that, would that allow you to do, though? So well, okay. Easy. So after graduation, <laughs> about two years of training, yeah. uh, all of it was out in California. So yeah. navigator school, then navigator bombardier school, and then B-52 school, which is the first aircraft I started off in as a, as a navigator bombardier. Yeah, I flew those for... About seven years, I was stationed at Barksdale in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and uh, fun mission, horribly unpleasant aircraft to fly. Yeah, I mean it's vulnerable. They're still around. The what? ones I were flying were older than me. <laughs> Those are all now in museums. Yeah, but even the ones that are still flying are older than the people flying them. We have easily, I think, third generation people flying B fifty twos now. Wow, and frankly, they kind of smell like it too. Oh. <laughs> I mean, these are, they were built in the early 60s, so. Okay. They've been around. They've, They've been, been around. around. They're bought and paid for. That's why they're so, so still, good. Still around. Yeah. But uh, so some of the things that were really fascinating about our conversation was that uh, this path not only allows you to fly those, but you've been able to, like, as a navigator. Mm -hmm. So talk about I was, that. Well, this is where things kind of come together. And I'll, I'll also back up and say, I never really had a career plan. I, I knew I liked the military. I knew I liked science. Mm -hmm. I did vaguely have a plan that I eventually wanted to get my PhD. But other than that, I always just focused on doing the job I was in mm -hmm. and doors of opportunity opened for me. Right. Now, some people couldn't stand to go through life without a plan, but that's the way I did it. <laughs> but it really worked out good, that physics degree. And then I picked up a master's in geology in Louisiana at Centenary while I was on duty uh, with B-52s. And having a, a physics degree, a science master's, and being a good flyer, I wasn't the best, but I was good, mm -hmm. got me into test pilot school as a navigator, okay. which was a real blast. Uh, that's where you got to fly everything in the Air Force, okay. anything you could lay your hands on. Nice. Uh, I remember my very first flight, it's the first time I'd flown an aircraft with a canopy for a long time, because in B-52, I was downstairs with no window for oh, wow. seven years. Oh. <laughs> so I, I remember my face almost hurt from smiling so much the first time I flew up in a little fighter with a French pilot who was in my class in the front seat. Yeah. Uh, very international flavor. So I got to do all kinds of things there from flying fighters to gliders to, to C-130s, helicopters, just you name it. Yeah. Uh, everything you can lay your hands on. And often with just at most a day's notice, sometimes less. So, you know, you might be told in the morning, hey, you're going to fly an F-4 in the afternoon. Well, you run back to the tech order library, make sure you know how to work the ejection seat. <laughs> and then you the go most, fly. The most important piece. The most important piece, yes, yes. yes. And then once you're graduated, the patch that you wear entitles you to fly any aircraft without instruction. Wow. Uh, now, as a navigator, it doesn't matter because I'm not going to be flying and I'm right. going to be the guy in the back seat. Right. But still, uh, it, it short of astronaut, which at Test Pot School is kind of also astronaut lead-in, or it used to be, mm -hmm. uh, it's about as... It's about as the most exciting thing you can do in, in the military. That is so cool. So describe for me what a navigator does. I mean, I would assume, you know, tell the pilot where you're going, but 
Yeah, well, it, it's it's changed a lot too. Um, I was told when I first came in, and this was in '82 when I got com- my commission. Oh, you know, navigator is going to be obsolete. You know, in year in a few years, you're not right. going to have a career. Well, they're still in. Uh-huh. They have been gradually replaced by black boxes in a lot of aircraft. Okay, but where you need specialized knowledge and you need need another uh, brain in the cockpit mm-hmm. to do everything, they're still around. So when it started, I really was genuinely a navigator. You would pencil and paper, uh, compass. You would call what's called dead reckoning your your chart. You'd look on a radar scope to correct yourself. I shot celestial navigation legs every time I flew. So I was the last one of the last generations to actually learn how to navigate with the stars and oh, the sun, wow. which I still feel privileged about. It's, yeah. a, it's a unique skill to have. Mm-hmm. So you do that. Uh, you're back up on the bomb run to the bombardier. Then you upgrade to that. So it's like going from co-pilot to pilot. You go from navigator to what's called radar navigator, but it's the bombardier and a, and a bomber. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, you're, you're navigating, you're in charge of the weapons, um, all that kind of stuff. What was the most exciting uh, if you have or fun trip that you had or exciting trip? I mean, there might be two different things there. Well, if if you're talking just B-52s, there wasn't much because that was during the Cold War. They didn't let you out of the country very much with a nuclear-capable bomber. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we would deploy to England every, about every year or two years for a few weeks. That was always fun to, to get out and do something mm-hmm. different. Now... Later on, after I went through test pilot school, I, I tested uh, C-130 gunships and talons. A lot of fun when you're flying, but a lot of overhead for every hour you fly. Yeah. But firing cannons out of a C-130, out of an aircraft, is an interesting experience. Some of the low-level testing I did was, was quite interesting. And then I left active duty to get my Ph.D., I cross-referenced that with where there were Guard and Reserve flying units I could keep going with. Mm-hmm. Ended up here in in Texas flying C-130s. And there got to travel all over the world, South America, uh, a lot of Europe, along with three wars, uh, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Oh, so you were in the... So in I did all three of my, com- my wars, and that's about six combat tours. As a National Guardsman, not a, I never had combat as an active duty officer, oh, even wow. in bombers. Wow. Yeah, you were saying that the other day, and I, was, I thought that was interesting. You said that that's the way it normally is, though, right? Most of the time. it's uh, Well, it varies. My timing just happened to be that uh, just when I went to test pilot school is the first Gulf War. So yeah. I was out of a combat line. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I would have been probably the lead bombardier going in. Got it. So I missed that one. Uh, and then... After flying in the test world for a few years, I was really looking at probably having to fly a desk for the next 10 because there wasn't new stuff coming down for a navigator to to be a test part of. So that's when I started saying, well, I've been wanting to get my PhD. I'll leave active duty and I'll go do uh, something else. So so I switched over and, uh, and did that. What was your original question? I started rambling there and got lost. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you actually participated in, Oh yeah, you weren't in active duty. You actually, yeah. it was a reserve. And- so uh, as a guardsman, which is like the reserves, but, uh, uh, well, the guard and reserve together are pretty substantial chunk of the Air Force's combat power. So yeah. everything that happens has guard and reserve in it. You just don't notice it because it just says Air Force on the, on the, on the patch. But yeah, yeah while I was working on my PhD at SMU, uh, during the summer, several times, I went and participated in the Bosnian War. Mm-hmm. You know, you just go for a few weeks. What did you do on your summer vacation? Well, I went to war for a little bit. 
bearing in mind, I've got to right. caveat this. I, right. Having been in multiple wars now, all credit to the guys and gals on the ground. Right. One one lesson I've really learned hard is that it's a lot better in the modern battle, battlefields to be flying over the battlefield than to be on the battlefield. Right. Right. <laughs> so I I I don't take for granted that you know the worst combat mission I had would have been considered a milk run in World War II. Wow. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Bosnia and then uh, Iraq for the beginning of the second Iraq, uh, Iraq war, Afghanistan a couple of times. Yep. The uh, danger that you felt while you were while you were during the war, getting shot at, or uh, that? not all that much. Uh, danger. I didn't feel too much. Now all my physical combat time is in s slick C-130s, unarmed okay. transports. Okay. You also don't have good vision out there. So if it's daytime, you often wouldn't even know if you're being shot at till holes appeared in the aircraft, oh, wow. which never happened to me. Okay. Um, at night, when you're flying with night vision goggles, yeah, you can see anyone shooting for 10 miles around. You understand the threats. I never felt a direct threat. Okay. My Before my first combat mission, I'm a little bit nervous, you mm -hmm. know, not knowing what to expect. Once you're at the aircraft, you open up your checklist, you're starting to do the stuff that you're trained for, all that goes out your head. Don't even notice it. And from then on, you're just immersed in the mission. It's busy. You're doing your stuff. So Don't I didn't worry feel about that. The fears, yeah. Again, the air war Much for different. the U.S. people has not been a huge threat. Right. If you're flying helicopters, it's significantly more. Yeah. If you're flying fighters, it's significantly less than C-130s uh, because we're flying low and slow. We do airdrops. Yeah. The fighters are up high. Uh, they shoot back. We don't. So, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know. We did have some of our C-130s get shot up a little bit or mortared, but fortunately no one hurt from our unit. Yeah, good. That's, it's always interesting to hear just the perspective of someone's life, like what, what you actually have gone through. And uh, as far as most interesting, like most interesting aircraft that you've been in or, or fastest mm. or... Oh, you know, like, wow, know. there's all kinds of things. I mean, some of the highlights I, that really stick in my mind was my first time flying gliders in the Sierra Nevadas. That was part of test pilot school. Another one was... Uh, uh, the one time I've been at Mach 2 was in a real stripped-down F-4 fighter. They're all retired now, but an F-4 Phantom just zipping over the top of Edwards Air Force Base in California with a future astronaut in the front seat okay. and just having a blast. I can also remember rat racing through the Sierra Nevadas yeah. in a pair of F-4s. So you know, you're just zipping through the valleys at wow. 450 knots. You crest a ridge. And you roll over on your back and then you pull hard at the ground to get back down low. And mm -hmm. that's an odd feeling to look up and feel the G's as you're pulling towards the ground. So those experiences, uh, flying a helicopter for the first time in Canada with uh, Canadian forces, a lot of interesting memories. F-16, uh, doing a max performance takeoff. So you take off, you stay right above the runway, you bring up the gear, you keep the bur afterburner in. By the end of the runway, I don't remember, it's so long ago, but I think we're at four, four, 400 or 450 knots. You pull straight up, yeah. and a few minutes later, you roll out on your back at 40,000 feet. Wow. I mean, it's just an elevator ride like, or a roller coaster ride like nothing else. Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of visceral fun things that come from a 30 years in the cockpit. Yeah, that's that, that's really cool. I always love hearing those experiences because it's just, you see a lot of this in the movies, and you're like, mm -hmm. talking to somebody like, and I will say, I don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie, but I am a new experience junkie. Okay. I love new experiences, new learning. Mm -hmm. I haven't, I never picked up a pilot's license. I have no desire to fly a Cessna around or anything like that. Right. Uh, 
Maybe I got spoiled. I don't know. <laughs> You've been there. It was fun to play. I mean, I would government imagine, expense. I would yeah, I'd imagine after the experiences that you've had, uh, flying the Cessna would be kind of boring. You can make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be wise, but you can you can make it fun or yeah. exciting. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, the the other side of your life. So that was that was the military part. Now let's mm-hmm. talk about the, your your interest in in, in the sciences and geothermal and mm-hmm. some one of the things that fascinated me is is the research research you're doing now. And you said your interest was in space, mm-hmm. and I was like, wow, tell me about that. Well, again, first I'll trace it back to being a science fiction nerd, okay. uh, and I still read science fiction on a regular basis. So I've always been interested in, in space. Uh, when I first was going to college, I was thinking about being an astronomer mm-hmm. until I realized, one, I'm, I'm, you really have to be a really hardcore physicist. It, there aren't really astronomers. There's only astrophysicists nowadays. I'm not that good a mathematician. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, plus, the overproduction of astronomers is, is fierce. Uh, nowadays, as far as I under, it's been a few years since I looked at the stats, but I'll, not that many astrophysicists actually work in university research positions. A lot of the quants in finance mm-hmm. or astrophysicists or physicists, okay. they're in other areas. So anyway, I love astronomy. I'm an amateur astronomer. I've got several telescopes. I like my field of, of geothermal research. And like I have a couple of times, I kind of bridge the two aspects of my love interest, so to speak, and realized, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of potential. We need energy sources on the planetary bodies we go to, whether it's the moon, Mars, the the icy moons of the outer solar system. And the only ways we do it right now are solar, which decreases dramatically as you go outward from the Earth. By the time you get to Jupiter, it's 125th as strong. Wow. Or nuclear power, atomic uh, piles, so to speak. And those have their own problems, plus they're heavy. So what else can we do for power? And I thought, well, geothermal might work. And there are very different scenarios that I think look promising on the moon and in the icy moons. Mars, I'm not convinced of yet. Um, Not much tectonic activity, although maybe a little bit. But the moon has some potential around the polar regions where where you can get a real high temperature differential. What you need to generate power off geothermal energy, or really off any energy, is just a good temperature difference between two areas, your source and your sink preferably not over a huge distance apart. On the icy moons in the outer solar system, you have that because you have basically a minus 200 degrees C surface. You have an ice crust anywhere from a few miles to 100 100 kilometers thick. And then below that, you have probably salty oceans, somewhere near zero degrees. So a 200 degrees C difference there. Okay, that's exploitable. You can generate energy with thermocouples off that. Or you could do a more conventional system. On the moon, you can get a similar situation, I think, and I still need to research this a little more, but craters around the poles. Mm-hmm. At the poles, we found that there's water in the bottom of the craters. Those oh. craters are per- perpetually dark. The sun never shines on them. Mm-hmm. And some water has frozen out and accumulated there. Well, the lip of those craters has a dark side that's always very cold and half the time has the other side of the lip of the crater facing the sun and very hot. Wow. So theoretically, you could bridge that cold and hot and generate some power that way. Wow. So I'm interested, I'm, I need to find some the right avenue of funding from NASA to actually start researching that and write it up. But uh, Love of science fiction just, just never knows where it, never, you never know where it takes you. 
true. And uh, uh, I'm also uh, another thing I'd published a couple of years ago that I actually did write up and publish is one of the plot elements of a possible uh, series that's trying to develop right now a science fiction series. So oh, okay. I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that. That'd be another cool experience. Yeah, just to be able to be, just part to be of a the... technical consultant on something like that. <laughs> so cool. Well, uh, talk to, we talked about the geothermal uh, energy in space, but I'm, um, you've also mentioned that you do some of that consulting work here mm -hmm. on Earth. So let's talk a little bit about that and the renewable sources and, and how that differentiates from solar and wind and that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, great area. Uh, stop me in an hour or two. <laughs> but the, the, the Earth has a lot of heat in it. The, the core of the earth is about the same temperature as the surface of the sun, okay. but it's a lot closer to us. Mm -hmm. There's a continual 44 terawatts flowing out of the earth from the core. Sounds like a lot, but it's actually not all that much compared to how much is stored in the crust of the earth. At least a couple of thousand years worth of our energy needs is stored as heat in the rocks. The rocks are great batteries of heat. Yeah. Geothermal power using hot water in the ground, usually near volcanoes or something, has been exploited as a power source for about 100 years mm -hmm. in the U.S. for since the 60s, or maybe a little earlier. Uh, if you want to go back to using it for hot springs and baths and stuff, it goes back thousands of years. Well, yeah. So it's a resource that we've been using for a long time. And the U.S. actually generates more geothermal power than any other country in the world but we use so much power that it's less than half percent of our grid. In some countries, it's half their energy production. So it's a mature technology in one aspect, but you have to go where Mother Nature concentrates the resource right now. Volcanoes, earthquake zones, that kind of stuff. Advances in both oil and gas tech, drilling technology and conversion of heat to power technology have really come together in the last couple of years where I think we're on the cusp of a revolution that will allow us to do geothermal anywhere. And that could really change the energy picture. So that's why I'm motivated and in it now. So is that just like drilling or is that just what kind of technology? That would be about? drilling. So for instance, I do have an Air Force funded project that's in the detailed design phase to put in a three megawatt geothermal plant on a small uh, military base called Ellington Field on the south side of Houston, mm -hmm. actually inside the Houston city limits. Uh, if we can make it all the way to drilling, and that's pairing my university up with a startup. It's mm -hmm. a unique form of military funding that requires a startup and a university together. Okay. But if everything stays on track, we could have that up and running in well less than two years. But To generate power. To generate power. Three megawatts or so of electricity on a 24-7 basis. Tell that's another nice thing about geothermal. Wind about megawatts. Like what's the, what well, is that? Uh, gosh, let me what? think. Uh, for the audience to kind of understand. That would be power. a few thousand households. Okay. Or in this case, it's a small military base. Got it. A uh, 200 acre base in on the south side. It has up to 5,000 guard and reservists assigned to it. Okay. It's also adjacent to NASA. So that's where NASA flies their airplanes in and out of. So Ellington Field. So yeah, three megawatts is a small town, a military base, something like that. This is a proof of concept. So this would be essentially a prototype. Mm -hmm. uh, you can scale it up a lot. Rough modeling shows you probably get about three megawatts per well. You could drill multiple wells in an area mm -hmm. within limits so that you could get up to maybe 10, 20, 30 megawatts in a, in a relatively small area. You're having to drill 
I, I always think in kilometers, uh, five kilometers, so about three miles down in the Houston's setting. Depends on where you are geologically. You might have to drill 10 kilometers. You might only need to drill one or two to get to the level of temperatures you need uh, to generate power. And you do this by, instead of a mother nature engineering or designing a flow system with hot water, you do your own. Yeah. That's what enables you to do it anywhere. So you drill, there's a variety of schemes, one well, two wells, but you circulate some fluid at depth, extract the heat, bring it up to the surface and run it through a turbine. Pretty simple concept, it's been used for ages. That's the basic idea. It's just the technology has really come together in only the last few years to make this happen. And there's multiple startups launching projects around North America in particular, but other parts of the world too. And so within a couple of years, we're going to have real good clarity, I think, on what works or what doesn't. And frankly, if even one of the methods works, I think it's off to the races on, on putting in zero carbon geothermal energy. Renewable, or how long does that will last, or what, what does that look like? Renewable by most definitions. Uh, you are technically mining heat, but at a very slow rate. Uh, so a typical place, uh, when you set up your system, you'll get a peak amount of heat out, and then that'll follow kind of an exponential decline over time. So you'll level out pretty much, depending on the scale of your system and a variety of other things, in a few years or so, and to a, a pretty constant level. And a well-managed system can, can last essentially indefinitely. Again, the oldest one operating in the world is Lardarello, Italy. It's been running for over 100 years. The Geysers in California is the largest one in the U.S. That's a massive plant, 800-plus megawatts. Uh, after some problematic management in the 70s and 80s, they're on a good track now. And so it's steady state. As long as you manage it well, it'll keep going. So renewable for at least hundreds of years if not longer, and a great bridge until we can figure out fusion, okay. which would be my ultimate hope is that we can figure out fusion. That that would be really cool too. Um, what's the difference between that? So when, when you're looking at renewables, uh, between that and like solar or wind? Fair question. Uh, they are both renewables. The key overriding difference is that geothermal is always on. And so it's base load. It's, it's your 24-7 power source, pretty steady state. To some extent, you can even make it dialable. So load following is the term. Mm -hmm. So you can make it match your needs. Wind and solar are great, but they depend on wind and, and the sun. So mm -hmm. they're not 24-7. And that's starting to dawn on, for instance, power companies and such. So, for instance, no matter, and I love wind and solar, uh, no matter how much wind and solar you install, you can't decommission any old plants because you got to keep them on standby for when there isn't wind and sun. Right. With geothermal, you can then decommission on, old yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. So another study I'm proposing to do real soon is, can we use decommissioned coal plant sites for geothermal and get an advantage of the, the sunk infrastructure that's already there? Mm. So it might be an, I love when you can turn, you know, these fossil fuel, either skill sets or facilities or whatever into a nice uh, green renewable. Something, and, yeah. you know, the oil and gas industry, uh, they don't have the, the best PR, but their skill set transfers 80 to 90% right into doing geothermal. Nice. So you can turn it from being a fossil fuel to a green source. Well, I hadn't even thought about that, but that would be really cool. And all the uh, major companies are really watching the, the 
the subject closely. They've all formed teams that are monitoring and looking at what how they can get into it and that kind of stuff. You mentioned startups. Are you, are you seeing more startups in this area? The leading edge right now does rest in the startup world yeah. uh, with some support from the, from the academic community. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a couple of spinoffs out of UT related to geothermal energy mm-hmm. uh, from faculty and research scientists. But there's a handful of startups that are really leading the charge right now that have variations in their own ideas on just exactly how you extract the heat. There are different mining ideas, different ways you drill the wells or or create fractures to flow or drill a complex radiator pattern in the ground. So um, they're they're all moving ahead. They'll all they either have quite recently or will soon test drill to kind of everybody has great models. Mm-hmm. Right. Everybody can do a good, just like anybody can do great statistics. Right. So you got to prove it. And we're seeing that start to happen now and over the next two years or so. Very nice. Sounds like you have had quite the interesting career and also there's quite the interesting future in this, in this space. Um, So as this running this all the way around back to the masters of Honor podcast, I want to ask, you know, what's the secret for your career? What's, I mean, what, what, when you look back, do uh, you have any regrets or just, you know, you said you didn't have a path Ooh. earlier. No, I, I didn't. That's an interesting question. Um, I would gladly start and do, do it all over again. Uh, the only regret I have is on a, on a personal side, uh, while I was doing my PhD, I was a single parent for most of that time and flying for the guard. And I really should have rebalanced a little bit more for my daughter. Yeah. That's really the only thing I would change. Uh, it's been fun, exciting. I mean, we were talking beforehand. I've I've gone from one low-paying career field to another. Uh, money is obviously not my driver. I, I like contributing to knowledge. I like learning new things, experiencing new things. And I've been able to do that. Uh, even in the military, I've turned, I turned down jobs, which is a pretty rare thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, it never hurt me, be, but I turned down things because, you know, I just didn't think it was, I would like it enough to be good at it. Right. The one thing I found is, is I really think you got to love what you do yeah. because otherwise you won't work hard enough at it to be good. Bingo. And I, I've known a lot of people that are do a, they're in a career that they think they should be in, but right. they're miserable. Yeah. I haven't had that. That's I, I've really had a good ride. And yeah. uh, it's been a lot of fun. Well, and I, I enjoyed that aspect, and that's inspiring because I think more people just need to hear that message. It's like just follow what makes you happy inside, and things will work out, and and uh, you won't have the regrets. They generally right. will. Uh, you know, there's randomness to it too. Right. You yeah. can't avoid that. But you know, I respect someone who does a anything they do with enthusiasm and love. You know, um, I'm not that good with my hands, but I really admire good woodworking. Mm-hmm. I've, I'm not a terribly good writer. I really admire good authors, people mm-hmm. who can write. Yeah. Uh, I thought I knew how to write, you know, having done a PhD and all. And then I went to the army war college where I had to write more general stuff and found out I'm not that good a writer. <laughs> uh, it's humbling to know that after a while, you're like, Oh, not my, that's I not can my write thing. a science article, <laughs> but, uh, I'm not as good at writing a general yeah. Uh, peace on anything. Well, everybody's got their gift you know, at the end of the day. And it's, as long as you find out what that gift out, mm-hmm. what that gift is, 
and uh, you know follow that path. I think that you're you're on you're on the right path. So, well, thank you very much for joining me today. I really enjoy the conversation. I look forward to uh, checking in on you and figuring out what's going on in the future with geothermal. It's it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ken, for joining Masters and Founders today. It's amazing to learn about non-traditional paths to mastery and success and the value of following what interests you and what you're passionate about. I think Ken said it best when he said, you have to love what you do. Otherwise, you won't work hard enough to be good at it. Wise words to live by. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to Masters and Founders today. To learn more about how podcasting can help your business, visit us at foundingmedia.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. See you next time.